You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thanks for joining our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. I'm Darrell West, Vice President of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and the author of Power Politics, Trump and the Assault on American Democracy. Social media platforms and search engines represent a major source of information for many people. These sites allow individuals to get information and share material with a wide range of individuals. Yet, it is not clear how much responsibility these sites bear for material published on their platforms. It's also not clear, in terms of search engine recommendations, how much responsibility they bear in that area. In 1996, Congress enacted legislation that shielded internet providers from legal liability for information published on their sites. And for the past two decades, most judges have taken an expansive view of that legal liability shield and made rulings that exempted platforms from legal responsibility. Now there's a case coming before the Supreme Court that will test the scope of existing laws. The case, Gonzalez versus Google, could have profound consequences for social media sites, search engines, and content moderation. Separately, there's also the possibility that the Supreme Court could weigh in on challenges to state laws in Florida and Texas that aim to impose certain obligations on social media companies. To discuss these important questions, we are pleased to be joined by two distinguished experts. John Villasenor is a professor of engineering, law, and public policy at UCLA and a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings. Mark McCarthy is a senior fellow at the Institute for Technology, Law, and Policy at Georgetown University and a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings. John and Mark, welcome to our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. Thank you very much. Yeah, glad to be anywhere. (laughs) So, John, you have written about this court case. I'd like you to introduce the case, who is involved, and what are the issues raised in this case? So this case has its roots in a terrorist attack committed by ISIS terrorists in France in 2015, and a U.S. citizen was among the people killed. And in the United States, there's a law called the Anti-Terrorism Act, which provides a cause of action uh, under which survivors uh, of relatives, for example, of a U.S. national killed in an international terrorist act have a cause of action. And so the plaintiffs in this case are alleging that uh, YouTube, well, Google, which of course owns YouTube, is liable because, in the words of the, in the view of the plaintiffs, because it recommended ISIS videos to users, and the plaintiffs claim that it there, the Google therefore assists ISIS in, in spreading its message, uh, and so they filed a claim in a federal district court. Uh, the federal district court uh, dismissed the claim because. Our, citing Section 230, which is the law you alluded to a moment ago, which was enacted in 1996 and does indeed provide immunity, or at least some immunity. Uh, And then there was an appeal to the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit affirmed that decision. And and finally, the Supreme Court is now going to take that up and decide whether or not 
Section 230 provides liability for recommendations provided by, for example, social media companies. So the current Supreme Court does not seem reluctant to overturn major decisions based on its rulings in other areas. Does the fact that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear this case mean that it is likely to take definitive action? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think there's there have been rumblings for a while. Uh, well, for, perhaps most notably, Justice Clarence Thomas is, has gone on record expressing um, his view that Section 230 has been interpreted far too broadly. And it wouldn't surprise me if, if that view is shared by at least some of the other justices on the Supreme Court. And indeed, the fact that the Supreme Court uh, agreed to review the case um, indicates that four justices at least wanted to do so. It's, it's going to be an important new ruling, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if it did in some way uh, narrow the protections that the lower courts have read into or have concluded that Section 230 provides in terms of liability protections. So, Mark, I'd like to get your views on this case as well. How important do you see this case, and what are the stakes of a Supreme Court decision in this area? I think it's a, it's a very important case, and I tend to agree that the Supreme Court wouldn't have taken the case unless they, they intend to make some sort of adjustments in, in this area, and how far they go is, is open to see. Uh, we don't know at this point, but I think it's worth mentioning that just last week, the Biden administration's Department of Justice weighed in with an amicus brief that essentially defended the plaintiff in the case, arguing that Section 230 should not apply to recommendations. Recommendations by a social media company would count as the speech of the company, not as the speech of a third party under Section 230. And so the Section 230 immunity shield wouldn't apply to recommendations. Now, it's important to distinguish that uh, argument from the argument that that, uh, YouTube is is guilty under the uh, Anti-Terrorism Act Uh, for aiding and abetting terrorists. The Department of Justice was careful that um, they didn't think the plaintiff had actually stated a real uh, case against against YouTube. But it it was clear that that YouTube couldn't stop the case from proceeding to a further stage by invoking the Section 230 immunity. The court would have to evaluate the claim, and it would have to evaluate in the first place whether the plaintiff had actually stated a sufficiently clear claim under the Anti-Terrorism Act for the case to proceed. But the news is that uh, companies in the case of recommendations, according to the Department of Justice, cannot simply say, I'm a social media company and Section 230 means this case has to stop here. The implications of that are really pretty far reaching if the court uh, accepts that. most companies uh, engage in recommendations, and recommendations, you know, are, are entirely the the entire business of a of a social media company like TikTok. It, it has no a series of followers that you can just follow and get a lead in sort of a chronological order. It's nothing but recommendations, 
And so it would effectively mean that a company like TikTok in all of its operations would be unable to take advantage of the Section 230 uh, immunity shield. Uh, whether the court goes that, that entirely in that direction, it's hard to tell, but the possibility is certainly there. And the big news is that the Biden Justice Department is there for that kind of change in the interpretation of Section 230. And if I if I could just chime in, you know, it wouldn't be that hard to write a decision basically saying that you know, however broad the immunity of Section 230 is, it doesn't cover recommendations, right? It wouldn't be hard for the Supreme Court to write that. The challenge would then come in applying that, because if you think about what that means, recommendations, of course, are done algorithmically. Uh, and if there is uh, an affirmative statement of liability or an affirmative finding that, that the companies providing the recommendations are liable for the content of those recommendations, then there's an enormous burden. Uh, that they would then need to undertake to sift through the essentially endless content uh, that it could get recommended and, and then sort of try to you know, figure out what might lead to a liability claim, which is certainly not in, a, in percentage terms, it's not a high percentage number, but in, in absolute volume terms, given the amount of content out there, it's a huge amount of content. And then it also could impact things that are uh, customized in ways that aren't necessarily specifically recommendations. You know, for example, when I do a Google search on the word weather, it gives me a search that is in some sense customized. For example, it tells me the temperature where I am right now. Google must have figured that out. You know, there's been cases that have confirmed uh, in the lower courts that have confirmed that search engine results uh, are protected under Section 230. But uh, a, f- a finding like this from the Supreme Court could cause, could give some, but put some wind in the sails of people who might argue that should be revisited as well, to the extent that search engine results are customized in part due to, for example, previous uh, online actions of the person doing the searching. So it's a really complicated set of downstream consequences that could emerge from this. So Mark, I'm curious about your uh, view on possible implementation issues here. Courts can rule more narrowly or more broadly. Given the role that algorithms play in making recommendations, what would the implementation issues uh, be if the court uh, ruled in a particular way? Well, I, I think John put his finger on the key issue. The phrase in the Justice Department filing and in the and in the plaintiff's filing is recommendation. But but what what exactly does that mean? I mean, uh, is all form of personalization a recommendation if if I order your Twitter feeds by uh, the people that you tend to click on the most and follow up with the most, that's certainly personalization. But am I recommending that or or am I just saying here's what you have indicated that you like? So I'm not recommending anything. I'm just telling you what the data show that you seem to prefer. So this implementation question is really crucial uh, because uh, the, the court simply can't use the word recommendation and think it's come up with a coherent policy. My, my instinct is that the way this is going to have to be dealt with is through a congressional in- intervention. I'm obviously, the Congress is going to wait and see what the Supreme Court does in the case. But almost everything that they do is going to be de novo law. It's going to be an attempt to rewrite Section 230 
through the interpretation of various phrases in in a 25-year-old law. And I think it's it's much more uh, responsible for the Congress to step in and and say, now we've rethought this issue after 25 years, and here's the new framework that we want to put in place uh, that would help control these kind of cases going forward. My own sense is, is that they should adopt the kind of notice liability uh, approach because w- what that does is take away the problem that John also mentioned, which is how do you know before the fact whether your personalization or your recommendation is going to be of something that's uh, in violation of law. You, you can't know that before the fact. Uh, but a, a notice liability situation would say, if someone tells you that you're amplifying or personalizing illegal material, then that's a sign that you have been informed of the illegality. And if you don't take action at that point, uh, then you might very well be liable. It's the same system that we've worked for copyright violation in the United States and that Europe has adopted in its recently adopted Digital Services Act. So, Mark, there also is a separate uh, case uh, concerning state laws that have been adopted in Florida and in Texas that impose certain obligations on social media sites. So could you briefly describe those laws and why are they potentially going to be considered by the Supreme Court? The two laws... Uh, one comes from the state of Florida and the other comes from Texas. The Florida law was adopted in, in May 2021. Uh, Florida, Ron DeSantis, um, proposed and signed the law. And it bars social media companies from removing uh, the account of any journalistic enterprise uh, or political candidate in Florida. And then very shortly after that, in September of 2021, Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed a law that denied social media companies the ability to block material based on the viewpoint of the user or the viewpoint embodied in the material. Uh, Both state media laws had provisions that required uh, publication of standards, uh, transparency reports, and other disclosure requirements. Now, naturally, the industry appealed, but the results were a mixed bag for them. The 11th Circuit uh, struck down the Florida law, except for its transparency rules, while the 5th Circuit upheld the Texas law in its entirety. So Florida has asked for the review of its law, which has been stricken down, and the uh, industry asked for a review of the Texas law, which has been upheld. The Supreme Court has not agreed to take the case, but given the conflict in the circuits, it almost certainly will will take the cases. And the consensus is that when the court does take up the case, it will likely strike down all of the content control measures in both laws, but it will allow the transparency measures to proceed into effect not entirely clear that that's the way it's going to work out in discussion. I, I think we can you know, go through some of the reasons why Republican judges might not stand in the tradition of Republican libertarian views on the First Amendment, but that's the conventional wisdom. And we'll, we'll see what happens when the court picks up the case and see if that conventional wisdom turns out to be correct. 
And John, I'd like to get your uh, views on these uh, two uh, state laws as well. And just also what possible legal consideration of them would mean for content moderation going forward. Yeah, so a couple of things. Just to, to add a bit more information, these cases are still at the preliminary injunction stage. And so in contrast with Gonzalez v. Google, which we were just talking about, that, that arrived at the Supreme Court through the sort of what you might call the traditional mechanism where there was a lower court ruling, a federal appeals court ruling, and then a petition to the Supreme Court, which, which the Supreme Court granted, and then we'll hear argument and there's briefing and all that. Uh, by contrast, in both in Texas and Florida, the laws were preliminarily enjoined and, and that injunction um, uh, was essentially upheld in the 11th Circuit, but not it, it's no longer enforced in the 5th Circuit, which is where Texas is, and the 11th Circuit, of course, includes Florida. I do agree that the Supreme Court may, uh, may in fact weigh in, but they may do so in what is sometimes known as the shadow docket. In other words, uh, by issuing some sort of uh, decision without the benefit of a, a full traditional argument. And that's simply because the lower courts haven't actually reached the end point of actually deciding uh, on the original challenge, which is whether these uh, laws in Texas and Florida are, are unconstitutional or not. So the dynamics of, of any Supreme Court action in that particular context are likely to be a bit different. And I, I have to jump in there because, in fact, both the 11th Circuit and and the Fifth Circuit have reached official uh, final rulings on the case. It's ripe for Supreme Court. It's not an injunction situation. Both courts uh, have um, have reached their final conclusion. If the Supreme Court does not take the case, the Texas law goes into effect. The only reason it isn't into effect right now is that the uh, the Texas court granted a petition from the industry. Uh, to prevent it from going into effect while the Supreme Court considers the case. If the Supreme Court doesn't consider the case, the Texas, uh, the, the Fifth Circuit is going to lift that injunction and the law will go into, into effect. Yeah. I, I, mean, I guess maybe that's minutiae. I was under the understanding, I'm, for example, here's a sentence from the 11th Circuit ruling. We hold that the district court did not abuse its discretion when it preliminarily enjoined those provisions of the, of the law that are substantially likely to violate the First Amendment. So my understanding was that the, that it was still at the preliminary injunction phrase. But but regardless, um, the I think the broader fundamental question here is that the question is can social can the largest social media companies be treated uh, as as what are sometimes uh, as common carriers? And common carriers are traditionally things like the railroads and telephone companies, and today of course cellular phone companies. So. You know, a cellular phone company cannot decline to offer somebody a cell phone service subscription on the grounds that they don't like what that person is likely to say. They don't like the anticipated content of the conversation that the person might have under using their networks. And so they're common carriers. They're obligated to offer services, service without discrimination. And so even though common carriers are private companies, a cell phone company is a private company, a railroad company is, is generally a private company, a ferry boat operator is a private company, the government can still impose non-discrimination obligations. So one of the big sort of philosophical debates that underpins these laws in Texas and Florida is whether the largest social media companies can be regulated as common carriers. I, I personally think they should not and cannot be. I think that would violate the First Amendment. But there are plenty of people who disagree with me. And that is one of the sort of key issues that, that would be at the center of this. And it, coupling back to your question earlier, Daryl, about content moderation, if there were to be a finding that these social media companies can be regulated as common carriers, well, that would have absolutely profound implications 
for content moderation because it would uh, it would you know reduce or even remove a lot of the legal ability of these social media companies to actually filter content. Uh, so I think it would be a huge huge concern. So Mark, these legal cases come against the backdrop of lots of concerns about social media platforms in general. Elon Musk has purchased Twitter, and of course, there are many concerns about how he and his firm is handling content moderation. Some policymakers have suggested it may be time to limit the legal liability of social media firms. Is it time for different rules in this area? And what would you like to see lawmakers do? Kara Swisher the other day said something that I think is probably right. Uh, She said that Musk seems to be attempting to turn Twitter into the social media equivalent of Fox. His ruse of free speech absolutism seems to play the same role as Fox's rhetoric of fair and balanced. And he seems to be determined to to drive progressives out of Twitter, uh, and he wants to court right-wing crazies. He made comments the other day, a a taunt uh, that said, my pronouns are prosecute Fauci. So this prospect of a conservative Twitter might scramble the uh, likely political alignments. Um, Suddenly, the state social media laws do not look so favorable to right-wing interests. The Florida Act says that Twitter has to carry the New York Times as well as the New York Post. And uh, it says Twitter has to carry all the comments of Democratic political candidates as well as Republican political candidates. And the Texas law says that Twitter cannot do anything about progressive advertisements or calls to action. Twitter must allow woke content and material defending transgender rights. Uh, From the left perspective, this prospect of a conservative Twitter might make Democratic justices begin to wonder whether they really want a public square that Twitter controls to turn into a right-wing propaganda machine. Democratic justices might now see these state laws as a way to use government to control Elon Musk, to prevent him from turning Twitter uh, into Fox News. So the result might be some Democratic justices vote to uphold the law, some Republicans vote to overturn it, and this could scramble the political alignment, perhaps enough uh, to change the likely outcome from one that rejects the um, uh, the laws to one that upholds the laws. Well, we'll just have to see which way the, the courts, uh, the justices come down. And I, I just like to maybe just jump in, just because a, a justice or a judge, for that matter, was appointed under a president from a particular political party, I don't think is, is sort of the whole story. I, I'll just give an example. In both the Fifth Circuit and the Eleventh Circuit, in these cases we were just talking about, the, the decisions were made by a three-judge panel. Uh, in the Eleventh Circuit, the three-judge panel uh, was highly skeptical of uh, and not, not, not supportive of the Florida law. And in the Fifth Circuit, the three-judge panel uh, was sympathetic to the Texas law. And, and my recollection, and I may be mistaken, my recollection is that all six of those judges in the, the, the courts of appeals that were on those opinions were appointed by under Republican presidents. I may be mistaken about that, but I think that's what I remember. And, you know, if that's a correct recollection, then, you know, the fact that these two circuit courts reached essentially opposite conclusions on some highly overlapping questions underscores that it's you know, political lines and political affiliations of you know, the presidents who appointed a particular judge is not necessarily dispositive in terms of the outcome of these cases. So it's complex. If, um, 
if Supreme Court precedences were unambiguous about this or absolutely clear, then I think your way of reflecting the, uh, the legal perspective rather than the political perspective. But the sense I have and the sense of this dissent from, uh, from the three Supreme Court justices is that they really have a legal jump ball here. They, they could go either way depending on the precedence. And, and as they point out, social media, it's a different bug. It's not newspapers. It's not broadcasting. It's not cable. It's its own thing. And so as a result, there are not really any overwhelmingly obvious legal constraints that would point them unambiguously in one direction or another. And the fact that the lower costs split so dramatically is another indication of the legal jump ball that they're facing in this circumstance. And that gives plenty of sway opening for, uh, for more uh, general policy concerns to jump in and make the call rather than a strict reading uh, of the precedents. And I'll just quickly say that I, I, I think that perhaps we'd all agree, or many people would agree, these are hard questions. Uh, yes. and, and, and people of good faith uh, and who have lots of expertise and experience can, um, can arrive at different views about what the solutions should be. These are just fundamentally hard questions. Yeah, I, I agree. These are the First Amendment and free speech questions of our time. And I'm hoping that the court treats them seriously and carefully and thinks through the long-term implications uh, of what, uh, what, what they're doing. The courts over the years set up a system for broadcasting uh, that lasted for generations and was a, a smart and reliable guide to how to regulate that technology. We're at the threshold of the same sort of thing for social media. Uh, and I'm hoping that the courts, uh, and, then, and then frankly, the Congress step in uh, to, uh, to set the rules of the road. If the court does go where I think they're likely to go, I still think it's likely to strike down the, uh, uh, the, the content rules in the social media uh, space, but we, we might get surprised. But if, if the court does go in that, in that direction and hold the transparency rules, then the next step, I think, is for Congress to jump in and say, okay, Supreme Court, you've given us some, some uh, guide rules here. Uh, the guidelines are clear. Uh, we don't want to go towards content control, but a, a reasonable and a tough set of transparency requirements would pass constitutional muster. Let's do that. Uh, if, if the court gives them that kind of leeway, I think it's highly likely that the Congress would take that. Uh, we won't have a decision until at least June of next year, uh, so we'll have to wait and see what the court does. But I think Congress would be well advised to to jump in here after the court has acted. So, Mark, we're discussing these issues in the context of the United States, but of course we know other countries also are looking at content moderation and uh, people in other uh, places have lots of concerns in this area. Are there nations that you think are doing a good job of handling these uh, issues? Uh, and are there places that are mishandling these matters? Well, I think two countries are, are doing a reasonable job. Um, actually, one is, is, uh, is the European Union, which is less a country than a, a federation of countries. But I, I think the Digital Services Act uh, is a responsible way to try to address these issues. Uh, on the, the Section 230 question, as I mentioned, it takes the perspective uh, of a, a notice liability. If you tell a company that the uh, material involved in a post is illegal, 
uh, that counts as notice to the company. And if they don't do something at that point, they are potentially liable uh, for the illegality themselves. I think that that is a very, very good approach and one that I hope we adopt here in the United States. The second approach, though, is largely transparency. Uh, they have requirements in three areas. Um, uh, one is to give users more information about the social media company's rules, uh, to give the social media users explanations when a content moderation action takes place, and the right to appeal, both internally and externally. Uh, they have uh, requirements for transparency reports where they require the social media companies to conduct risk assessments, uh, to look at the way the harmful material on their system uh, is, is moderated and to report on that to the public. And then the third er element of transparency is access to information for, for vetted researchers where, uh, where researchers uh, from academic institutions and from other institutions uh, can uh, get access to internal company data to see whether uh, the risks are being properly controlled and what efforts might be brought to bear that might do a better job. Those three elements in the Digital Services Act strike me as being uh, extremely attractive. Uh, the United Kingdom had a, 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 a law which is not yet final. The latest proposals that uh, the government has put forward uh, it take a step back from their earlier idea of, of regulating lawful but harmful content. There were previous uh, steps that would require the government to define such content to create a kind of gray zone of content that is not quite illegal, but not quite pure either, and to then require the social media companies to take certain steps with respect to that stuff. Uh, there's still some of that left in the, uh, in the bill. It, it requires social media companies to provide user control mechanisms for material that is defined in the bill. It's essentially hate speech and other speech that would be harmful to particular groups. And instead of having to block that stuff, uh, the companies are required to give user control uh, over that material. The UK bill doesn't have access to information for researchers, so it's defective in that respect. Um, and, but it does have substantial transparency measures as well. So both of those countries, I think, are taking steps in the right direction. Uh, uh, Canada, Australia, uh, New Zealand, Ireland uh, are all taking similar steps uh, that look uh, like positive steps to my way of thinking. Okay, I want to thank John and Mark for sharing their thoughts with us today. At Brookings, we write regularly about these issues, and you can find more information on our Brookings Tech Tank blog located at brookings.edu. So thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.